cards, uh, those of you in the room, those of you online in the morning, please look all to see what you can get out with the next card for the percent, and uh, it will get where it needs to get. Um, so listen, a, a little addendum to our normal food bank ministry. I got a text from Jessica yesterday. So, so what, we, what we do, you know, we've got the, the donations that you guys give. We've got some other like local ministries that are giving us bread and giving us all sorts of different things that we, we get out. Uh, the primary thing, though, that, uh, that has really helped kind of have things go next level has been the United States Department of Agriculture sends us a tractor-trailer truck every Friday uh, with 24 pallets of, that has, I think, like 1,200 boxes of food. And so we normally get that every Friday. This week we're getting two trucks. So, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of amazing. So, so uh, I think it's going to come, one's going to come Thursday and one's going to come Friday. Is that right, Jessica? Wednesday. Good, just in time for the 15 inches of snow. We'll figure it out. They plow the roads. It'll, it'll all, we'll, we're not going to let that deter us. So, so listen, this is a great week for you to be blessed by volunteering with our food bank ministry. This is a good week to do it. I just got to say, so this past Friday, I had to work. I had to do stuff in my office. But the, the previous Friday, I was like all day, like helping with the truck. Helping with it, it was so much more fun doing that than just being stuck in my office doing other things. So you guys are, if you haven't done it yet, you're missing out. It's really, really a lot of fun. Um, so we are now in our Christmas season. So this is Advent. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the incredible birth of Jesus. I never get tired talking about the birth of Jesus for many, many, many years since dinosaurs roamed the earth. I've been giving Christmas uh, messages, and we've kind of looked at it in a lot of different ways, you know, just celebrating the amazing reality of John 1, 1, which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was with God in the beginning, through Him all things were made, without Him nothing was made that has been made, in Him was life and light, that was the light of all mankind. How amazing that the one who made everything, through whom everything was made, who has life, became a little baby. And so we take, you know, a few weeks every year and just kind of center in on this amazing reality. And through the years, I've done it in a lot of different ways. Uh, I've, I've preached a lot of messages on the different people who comprise the Christmas story. So we've talked about uh, Mary a bunch of times because Mary's awesome. Uh, we've talked about Joseph. Uh, we've talked about the shepherds. I think I even did a message, I think at least once, on Herod. And that was kind of more of a what not to do message because Herod is the one, you know, you don't want to emulate him. Um, we've done, we've looked at the prophecies in the Old Testament that are really just amazing. The prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Uh, a couple years ago, I remember I did a series on, uh, on the titles of Jesus in Isaiah 9. The, you know, uh, Almighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. So, so this year, I want to do something a little different. We're going to look at the wise men, and specifically, we're going to look at, I know when you're in Jersey and you say the wise guys, it's a little different, you know, could mean, no, no, the guys in the Bible, and, uh, and but we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to look at the gifts that they brought, because the gifts that they brought all, sim they symbolized, they prophetically spoke about something, something that Jesus was going to do. Now, tradition tells us there were three wise men. That's what church tradition says. But we really don't know how many wise men there were. It might have been three. I think tradition says three because there were three gifts. And, you know, it's rude to show up somewhere without a gift. And so they just maybe assume that every wise man had a gift. But we really, we really don't know whether it was three, whether it was more. But what we do know is that they were educated. They were, they were probably astrologers. Uh, they were educated. They were wealthy. They were powerful. They had traveled a far distance. And they, they were aware that something incredible had happened because they said they wanted, to, they wanted to not only acknowledge this king that was being born, they wanted to worship this king. So it seems like they knew something about the one who was from the beginning who was coming. And so let's pick up Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1, the account of the Magi. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." 
Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Sure, Herod, that's your plan. Uh, what Herod actually wanted to do is he wanted to kill this threat to his throne. And Herod did something terrible where it's called the slaughter of the innocents. And shortly after this, he ordered that all of the boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem would be killed. And so they were, they were slaughtered, they were killed. So Bethlehem, just a little, a little context, Bethlehem's about five miles south of Jerusalem, so it's kind of a, you know, a suburb of Jerusalem, which for its time was a pretty big city. Uh, these wise men, or magi, they were astrologers from the east. We don't know exactly where they came from. Probably uh, Persia, or Arabia, or Mesopotamia. And then here's one of those amazing prophecies that you find in the Old Testament. You know, you can, if you wanted to kind of fulfill prophecies, you could maybe like look at it and be like, oh, let me just kind of orchestrate things. You can't fulfill like where you're going to be born. You know what I mean? You can't like do that on your own. And so Micah 5.2 says that the Messiah is going to come out of Bethlehem. And so everybody knew that, but Herod didn't know that. But they all, they all knew, and that's one of many prophecies that you find all throughout the Old Testament. And so let's pick up now verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. By the way, I, don't, I, I saw something in the news. Apparently, they think they call it the Bethlehem star. It might be making an appearance, or did this week, or will this week, uh, that hasn't been seen in like 800 years. So that's kind of interesting. Just add that to all the interesting things happening in 2020. Uh, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, how many of you have a manger scene in your house somewhere? You, a, you know, under your tree, on your mantle, maybe on your lawn. How many of you ever played someone in a Christmas pageant? You were like a shepherd, you were a sheep, maybe you were an angel. Well, the reality is those, those nice uh, manger scenes that we have aren't really historically accurate because the shepherds, I think, showed up maybe even that night, maybe the night that Jesus was born in the manger. But the wise men, you see, they went to a house. And so what historians believe is they showed up after the fact, maybe even months after. Some historians might have think Jesus might have been a toddler, which makes, you know, worshiping a baby is one thing. Like, worshiping a toddler? Have you ever, like, toddlers are crazy, you know? So, but, uh, but, but, so, so it certainly wasn't the night he was born in the manger. Uh, and they brought these gifts. So they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so these were valuable gifts. I mean, gold, of course, it's a valuable gift. But frankincense and myrrh, that was valuable also. So not only did it, you know, have, it had prophetic meanings, and we're going to talk about that over the next few weeks, but it also really helped out Mary and Joseph, because Mary and Joseph were poor, and they were subsequently going to have to flee to Egypt because of Herod and the slaughter of the innocents. So maybe their gifts funded the trip that they had to take to Egypt. And so we're going to be talking about these gifts. We're going to talk about gold. And of course, you know, we know gold is valuable. It's valuable now. It was valuable 2,000 years ago. But gold represents the kingship of Jesus. And so on Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords and what that means. Then you have myrrh. And myrrh, actually myrrh and frankincense were both kind of like essential oils. I don't know if there's anybody here who's into, I know some people are like really into essential oils. They, they had a lot of, myrrh had a lot of like practical uses, you know, it was used for, um, for you know, healing and, and ointment and different things. But its primary purpose was to prepare a body for burial. So a really important part of preparing a body for burial, embalming a body, was using myrrh. And so myrrh represents the sufferings of Jesus, represents that Jesus was born to die, that he was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And then you have frankincense, and frankincense was another, you know, essential oil, had a lot of different uses, a lot of different purposes, but it had a religious purpose. So frankincense, when the priest was making sacrifices when in the Old Testament, they would, the priests would burn frankincense. And so the smoke of the frankincense would rise above the altar, and it kind of represented the cries of God's people for mercy. And so frankincense represents Jesus, our high priest. So we're going to talk about gold on Christmas Eve. We're going to talk about myrrh next Sunday. 
And we're going to talk about frankincense today. And so, so we need to understand, with Jesus, our high priest, we need to understand a little bit what the Old Testament said about a high priest, what the role and function was of the high priest. And so there was primarily one main purpose of the, of the high priest in the Old Testament. The main purpose was to represent the people to God. And the high priest primarily did this in two ways. The first way was that the priest would make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. The high priest would make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And don't forget, if you, don't, if you have your app, you can go to the This Sunday part and you can find all the scripture verses and the fill in the blanks and kind of follow along. Um, and so from the moment that sin entered humanity, there were these two opposing forces. There was the holiness of God and the sinfulness of human beings. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of human beings. Now listen, 21st century Western people like us, we have a hard time kind of understanding sin. We don't really get it. We think about sin very differently than like how humanity has thought about sin for thousands of years. Because we've got a worldview. We've got a paradigm. We've got lenses that we look at the world through. And you know what? I say that I think the reality, part of like the 21st century lens view, it is a, it is a very therapized view of the world. Which means we don't think anything's our fault. Like we, we don't think that like we committed a sin because we did something unloving, we did something unkind, we did something selfish, and we hurt God, we hurt other people, we hurt ourselves, and we're responsible for it. We actually, I think we kind of have this deterministic view of the world where what we think is that we are the result of heredity and environment. That it's heredity and environment that produces our actions. And so free will and self-agency and decisions and responsibilities are kind of left out of the picture because everything is someone else's fault. We don't think of sin like, I sometimes do bad things. I sometimes do evil things that really hurt people because there are times that I just want to be selfish and I want to do what I want to do and sin comes kind of easily for me. We don't think of it that way. And so if we don't understand, though, the reality of sin and the holiness of God, the effect that it can have is we don't really fully understand the salvation that's been offered to us. And so in talking about the holiness of God, the Greek word for holy is hagios. And it means transcendent. It means totally other. And so our God is holy. Our God is perfect. Our God is other. Our God is pure. Our God is sinless. I love the way Charles Wesley, the theologian pastor, would talk about the holiness of God. Would say that his every thought, word, and action is love. That God that God is love. He's completely and totally perfect. He's holy. And so holiness is not just one of the attributes of God. It is the perfection of all of God's attributes. God's righteousness is a holy righteousness. His mercy is a holy mercy. His faithfulness is a holy faithfulness. Now, the main problem in the Bible, the, the issue that the Bible is trying to deal with, which is something that, again, as 21st century Westerners, we have a little bit of a hard time with it. The main problem in the Old and New Testament is, all right, we've got sinful people, and so how can sinful people come into the presence of a holy God? That's a problem. We don't really understand that so much as a problem anymore because we don't really understand the nature of sin. We don't really kind of think we're, it's really our fault. It's someone else's fault. We can blame somebody else. But other people, like everyone before us, they understood that this was a big deal. And you, it was a problem because what it says in Hebrews is that our God is a consuming fire. And so the holiness of God, God is so perfect in his holiness, in his love, in his purity, that he's white hot. And so if you have something impure come into the presence of someone who is of God who is pure, that impure person is going to be consumed is going to be burnt up. The holiness of God is just going to swallow up any impurities that are, in, that are in God's presence. And so that's why the Old Testament says you cannot see the face of God and live. That's why Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he saw the Lord. He saw God in all of his holiness. The Bible says, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Isaiah got a glimpse 
of God and all of his holiness. And his response wasn't like, oh, that's cool. I always wanted to see this. That's kind of cool. God's kind of cool. His response is, woe to me. I am ruined. I am toast. For I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So Isaiah was like, I am in trouble because I, an impure, sinful person, I am seeing the Holy God. And then an angel stepped in and intervened. And so we ended up not being consumed. You see, God hates sin because sin is the opposite of everything that he is. It is the opposite of his love. It is the opposite of his goodness. It is the opposite of all of the blessings, all the things that are in his heart, everything that he's committed to. And sin is also the reason, the explanation for all of the suffering in the world. Now, I'm reading this big book right now that's all about the problem of evil. And the problem of evil is how do we philosophically deal with the reality that God is good, but there's suffering in the world? And I don't know, maybe I come at this a little bit simplistically because I don't know if I need a thousand pages to answer that. Sin is the reason that there's suffering in this world. Sin is the cause of all of the suffering, whether it's, you know, angels who sinned and chose to become demons, or whether it's the collective choices that all of humanity has made that we have just kind of said, we don't care, we're going to hurt people, and we're going to be selfish, and we're going to take what we want and do what we want. We don't care about the injustice or the pain or the things that it causes. God hates sin because it causes all of the suffering, but God also hates sin because sin keeps, puts a barrier between him and the people that he loves, right? We talked all throughout our What on Earth Am I Here For campaign, the wonderful news that God created us to love us. The reason that you exist is because God wants to lavish his love upon you, that he made you, that he loves you from before you were born. But it says in Isaiah 59 too, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. So all of the love that is in God's heart that he wants to lavish on his people, sin creates a barrier. Sin separates us. So that's why God hates sin. And as I said, the biggest problem in the, in the Old Testament was, and also in the New, is how can sinful human beings come into the presence of a holy God? And so the high priest, once a year, to deal with this problem, now priests would make sacrifices all throughout the year, but once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Now, in the Jewish temple, you had the temple, you had the court of the Gentiles, you had the temple. Then you had this room, which was the Holy of Holies. That's where God dwelt. That's where the presence of God was. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. The manifest presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. There was a thick veil. There was this thick curtain that went from the, from the ceiling all the way down to the floor because you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies because of sin, because of the separation. So once a year, on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, the high priests would go into the Holy of Holies and they literally would put a, a rope around his waist because they thought, all right, he's going into the presence of God. He might be toast. And so if he doesn't come out, we can't go in and get them, so we got the rope, and we'll pull them out because we're not going in there because we don't want to be consumed. And so the high priest would go in, and the high priest would light frankincense, and it would represented the cries of God's people for mercy and the cry for a covering. And so the frankincense, the smoke, would ascend up to the altar, and uh, then the priest would sprinkle the blood of, a, of an innocent, sacrificed animal to cover the sins of the people. Now, why does the Bible say that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins? Why did God need to do it this way? There's, you know, I could get off of some explanations, and there's some things here and there. But I think that we can all agree that God was certainly trying to tell us something, right? God was certainly trying to get us ready for something, that there was this, this, this unblemished lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of God's people to get us ready for the lamb of God that was going to one day take away the sins of the world. Now, everything that went on with this high priest, it was a temporary covering for people under the old covenant. But now, we have a new covenant. And we have a new covenant because of our high priest Jesus. Now, listen, I'm about to preach a little bit. And so I'm going to ask you guys, help me preach. All right, you guys, you guys, are you guys out there? You guys going to help me preach a little bit? Because I'll tell you what, there is nothing, I, you know, I, I did this at 9 o'clock and I just got a little bit overwhelmed. 
Because when we think about what Jesus has done for I mean, there is, there is no greater privilege that I could have in my life than to stand up here before you and talk about the wonders of Jesus and the wonder of what Jesus, our high priest, has done. I mean, there literally, there is nothing I would rather do on earth, and there is nothing that would be a greater honor than to do what I get the privilege of doing right now. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9. Now, the book of Hebrews, it's in the New Testament. It's written to Jewish Christians. So since it's written to Jewish Christians, uh, it talks a lot about the Old Testament, talks a lot about Jesus being our high priest. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people think it might have been Paul. I don't think so because the style's really different from how Paul usually wrote. Some people think it might have been Barabbas. We don't know. Barabbas, he didn't write anything. Barnabas, (laughs) sorry. Barnabas. Barabbas did not. I can, I can unequivocally say Barabbas did, Barabbas did not write the book of Hebrews. All right, good. Now that we know that. So, all right, so Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 9, says, Then he said, Here I am, the he being Jesus. Here I am. I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. He set aside the old covenant to establish the new covenant. And by that that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstools. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So because of what Jesus, our high priest, has done, we don't need priests to year after day after day, year after year, make sacrifices. Jesus once for all is the sacrifice for sin. And then after that sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so now the barrier that separates us from God has been removed. It is gone. It is no longer there. A lot of things happened when Jesus died on the cross, right? A lot of things like prophetic weird things happened. But one of the most powerful things that happened, the moment that Jesus died, the veil that was in the temple was ripped from top to bottom because now we are no longer separated from the love of God. We are no longer separated from the holiness of God. Now we can boldly come to God at all of the things that are in his heart for us, all of the love that he has for us, the desires to, to strengthen us, to be with us, to, be help, to help us. That is all available because Jesus, our high priest, died on the cross. The veil has come down. The reason we can enjoy the presence of God The reason we can live in the presence of God and experience his goodness and his strength is because Jesus, our high priest, has made the way, has opened up the door for us to do it. Somebody say amen to that. Come on. Now, I love what this says here in Hebrews. The way that it is, because it says, it's something you just got to understand. It's something that's so unique about Christianity, about the Jesus way. Because every other religion says that in order for you to be accepted by God, here's what you got to do. And you go to these different religions, and they all have different prescriptions. So you go to Islam, you got to do the five, five-fold pillar of Islam. You go to, you go to Hinduism, you got to do the eight-fold path. You go to this religion, it's something else. But the idea of it is here's what you got to do in order to be acceptable to God. Christianity completely flips that. It says in Hebrews, verse 14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now let that sink in for a minute, all right? Because it says, by one sacrifice he's made perfect. That is past tense. That means because of what Jesus has done, you are made perfect. You are perfect. That God has taken the righteous robes of Jesus and he has covered our sin and covered our iniquity. So now we can come into the presence of God. And you may say, well, wait a minute, Phil. I don't feel very perfect. I still do some bad things. I still struggle. I still fall. I still sin. I still have brokenness in my life. It's where I love it. It says, the sacrifice is made perfect once for all, forever. Those who are being made holy. Yeah. See, so, so God, he sees us as perfect. 
But he knows that we're not. He knows that we're still in the process of being conformed into the image of Christ. But now there's no longer anything to separate us from the love of God, the grace of God, the holiness of God. So now the consuming fire can consume us in a good way and work out our salvation to make us more like Jesus. But it happens because there's no more barrier. Because there's no more division. We can come freely into the presence of God. It says this in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So because of Jesus our high priest there is no barrier. Our filthy rags are covered. And God can love us. God can hang out with us. He can move and work in our lives. He can flood our lives with his presence because we are in Christ and we have now become the righteousness of God. There is no barrier. There is nothing to keep you from all the goodness, love, mercy, and salvation that's found in God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. And so that's the first job of the priest, the high priest. He would make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. But the second job was that the priest would pray for the people, standing in as the representative of the people of God. It says this in Hebrews 4, 14 to 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize or sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now this is one of the most encouraging lines that you could read anywhere. Because what this says is even though we still stumble, we still fall, we still are are being in the process of being made holy, that no matter what you're struggling with this morning, no matter how sin and brokenness is showing up in your life, Jesus Christ is firmly in your corner. Jesus is for you. Jesus is with you. Jesus understands. He sympathizes. He empathizes. Listen, so many of you, you've spent too much of your life thinking that God is, that he's just kind of fed up with you. You know, that when he thinks about you, he's just like, oh, this guy, I, I can't even. I mean, it's just like, when is he going to get his act together? When is, you know, I'm just disappointed and I'm frustrated. And I don't know if it's because of religion that you grew up in or your parents. I don't know where it came from. But that is a lie from the father of lies. Jesus Christ loves you. Jesus is for you. Jesus has sympathy for you. Jesus understands. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this. C.S. Lewis, he says... That is why, I don't, this was a late addition to my sermon. I actually put it in this morning. That is why Christians are told not to judge. We see only the result which a, man, which a man's choices make out of his raw material. But God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. And he goes on and he says, don't judge a man by where he is because you don't know how far he's come. See, we judge people, we're like, oh, what are they doing? What are they got to get it together? We don't, we don't know how far they've come. Jesus knows how far you've come. Jesus knows what you've struggled with. He knows the difficulties that you've had in your life. He knows things about your brokenness, about your issues, about your stuff that you don't even know. Stuff that you've forgotten. Stuff that you don't even understand. Jesus knows, and he is 100% for you. Our great high priest, he understands tempted in every way that we've been tempted, yet without sin. And I'm telling you, if we begin to understand, because our great high priest has dealt with the sin issue, now we're able to draw near with full confidence, knowing that he loves us, that he's for us, that he understands. Maybe you're here this morning and you've got a lot of pressure in your life. You've got a lot of stuff. I mean, we're all dealing with pressure. 2020 has all been about figuring out how much pressure and stress we can bear up under. Jesus understands your, your stress. He knows what it's like to have pressure. When Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
And the weight of all of this, all that he's going to do when he's on the cross is weighing down on him. And he is experiencing stress. He cries out, Father, if you can, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He was so stressed that the Bible tells us he was sweating drops of blood, which, which we understand now medically is something that happens when you're under extreme stress. Has anyone here ever shed drops of blood because you were so stressed out? Probably not. But Jesus, our high priest, understands the stress that you're under because he knows what it's like to be under that kind of stress. He knows what it's like to go through things. You know, we have things that produce anxiety, things that produce fear, and we try to walk in the peace that passes all understanding. He knows how hard that is. Because Jesus, he had the, you know, the Roman, the reality of the Roman occupation and everything that that meant. He had the religious leaders constantly trying to, to trip him up, trying to get him out of the way. It was kind of regular thing for Jesus. When he was doing his ministry, he was doing his thing, he'd say something or do something that people didn't like. And they'd be like, let's stone him. Let's throw him off a cliff. He knows what it's like to, to deal with situations that, are, that make it so hard for you to have peace. He knows what it's like to deal with a crazy family. Does anyone here have crazy in their family? Raise your hand if you got crazy in your family. Good, don't be afraid. They're not, you know, unless they're sitting right next to you. But then, but then probably their hand is up. But you know what? Crazy, I mean, that's just a thing. And I got to say this. Those of you who didn't raise your hand, you might be the crazy person in your family. It's a, you might just not have, I don't know. I don't know. It's between you and God and your family. I don't know. But, you know, Jesus understands crazy in a family. Jesus had two brothers. He had James and Jude. They actually both ended up writing a book in the New Testament. But their interactions with him during his ministry, like when he was saying that he was the Messiah, they weren't buying it. You know, they were like, I don't buy that my big brother's the Messiah. This is too. And so they actually came to him at one point, and they're like, Jesus, come with us because you've gone too far. I always thought it was interesting. Remember when Jesus was on the cross? And he says to, to John, the disciple, he says, behold your mother. And then says to Mary, behold your son. And you think like, what about James and Jude? Like, where were, where were they? In that? What was going on in that family? Now, they ended up both becoming followers of Jesus because they saw their big brother rise from the dead. And, and I'll tell you what, listen, if you have a big brother, what would it take for you to believe that he's the son of God, right? Probably something as big as him rising from the dead. But Jesus understands that. He understands crazy in the family. You know, no matter what it is you're going through, he understands. Jesus, our high priest, understands. He has empathy. He has sympathy for you. Think about the events of Jesus' life. And what, what God allowed Jesus to go through so that your high priest would understand, right? So he was born out of wedlock or conceived out of wedlock to a teenager in a town where everybody could do the math. And so Jesus probably all of his life when he would show up, be like, oh, here comes that bastard kid. There actually was a rumor that was written about around that time outside of the New Testament that there was a rumor that his father was a Roman soldier. And so he dealt with, you know, the whispers all of his life, like that kind of like shame that was put on him. His, he lost his father. Everything that we know about Joseph is that Joseph was an incredible guy. Joseph was a godly, good father, you know, and, and you know, God was Jesus' father, but Joseph was the father figure. And so Joseph doesn't appear anywhere during the, you know, during the, during the Gospels except in the accounts of Jesus' birth. And so somewhere along the line, along the way, Joseph died. Maybe he died when Jesus was, was little. And so maybe Jesus knows what it's like to be raised by a single mom. And some of you, you know what? You were raised by a single mom, or you're a single mom who's going through, and, and it's hard. Jesus understands how hard it was. He lived in poverty. Listen, the thing about Nazareth, where Jesus was from, remember when Nathaniel gets called to be a disciple and says, oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Do you ever wonder why that was said? It's because Nazareth was the poorest town in all of Israel. Like Nazareth was the working poor with an emphasis on the poor part. Archaeologists have discovered that a lot of the people who lived in Nazareth didn't even have a house. They didn't even have a hut. They lived in caves. So Jesus grew up without. He knows maybe, you know, I mean, he has a heart for the poor because he's, because he's God in the flesh. But I'm sure his growing up is something that gave him that heart for the poor. He, see, he saw the pain of it every single day. He was, he was constantly criticized. He experienced racism. 
Jesus experienced racism probably on a daily, if not daily, regular basis because there was Roman occupation. The Romans hated the Jews. They called them dogs. You know, they, they made fun of them. And then add on top of that the fact that Jesus was from Nazareth, his own people would, would ostracize him and would judge him and would make fun of him. So Jesus understands that. He understands all of it. He was falsely accused. You know, the, the religious leaders were always trying to trap him. I, you know, one time they come to Jesus, they always thought like, okay, how can we get him? And so they thought, we got a good one. And so they come to him and say, hey, Jesus, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they thought, all right, we got him now. Because if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then Rome's going to step in and they're going to deal with our Jesus problem. We won't have a Jesus problem anymore. And then if he says, yeah, go ahead, pay taxes to Caesar, then people are going to think, oh, he's in league with Rome and they're not going to listen to him. But what did Jesus do? Right? He said, oh, give me a coin. And so he took the coin and he said, whose picture is on the coin? And they said, Caesar. And he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and God's, you know, give to God what's God's. And they were like, man, we thought we had him. We thought we had a good one. He got out. So he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. I mean, he was betrayed you know, we, we know Judas is like the villain in the story, but Judas was one of the 12. Judas was with him for three years. Judas, like, broke bread with, you know, saw miracles. It was part of the company and yet betrayed him. And then all of the other disciples, they abandoned him in his moment of need. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be tempted. You know, we go through these periods. We all do. We go through these. We deal with temptation every day. But we go through seasons. Doesn't it sometimes seem like there's a season where temptation is just coming at us and it's just like a full court press and it's really intense. He knows what that's like. Because when Jesus was at his weakest, he was tempted by the devil. He was after 40 days in the desert, 40 days without food. The devil came with these intense temptations. We don't even really understand how intense they were, but they were intense. They were so intense that when it was done, God had to send angels to minister to Jesus because it was such an intense temptation. He understands when we go through temptation. He understands how hard it is. He understands we all go through moments. We all go through times where we feel like God has abandoned us. Have you ever felt like God's abandoned you? Where you just kind of think, God, where are you in this situation? This is so hard. When Jesus was on the cross, the moment that he who knew no sin became sin, the moment when God was once and for all <coughs> dealing with our sin, the Father turned his back on Jesus, and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus, our high priest, he understands. Not only has he opened up a way, he understands what, whatever you feel, he's felt. Whatever you've struggled with, he has struggled with that same thing. Wherever you hurt, he's been hurt in that way. He is our great high priest. He is for you. Jesus is for you. Jesus, we're going to talk next week about his sufferings. We're going to talk about what it means that he was born to die. We're going to look at Isaiah 53. Jesus did all of that for you because he loves you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy was you. The joy was you. The way is open. The veil has been torn. We can come into the presence of God and know that Jesus, our great high priest, the Bible says, always lives to make intercession for us. That means right now, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus knows what you're struggling with. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows how hard it is. And he right now is praying for you. He's saying, Lord, Father, help this one. Help them. They're going through it. Their heart's broken. They're lonely. They're afraid. They're struggling. Faith is hard right now. Father, give them what they need. Your high priest is for you. And so the Bible says again in Hebrews, talking about our high priest, verse six, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Let us, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence because the door is open. Your sin has been dealt with once for all. You have been made perfect. Now, you're not done yet. You are in the process of being made holy, but you have been made perfect so you can come into the presence of God. 
We could worship God as we did. We can live our life this week knowing that we can rely, we can depend on the presence of God. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Anybody here in a time of need? I bet every single one of us, we are in a time of need one way or, the, one way or another. The wonder of the gospel, the wonder of our great high priest is the door is open and Jesus says, come. Jesus says, I don't want you to live life on your own. I don't want you down here just trying to figure it out on your own. I love you. I am for you. I am in your corner. I want my strength to flow into your life. I want my hope. I often like to say hope is our superpower. Where else are you going to find hope in this world? Seriously. Where are you going to find it? There's no other place to find it. We can find a little something to get through the day. But where are you going to find a hope that will anchor your soul and make it so that you can go through any storm, face any difficulty, face any challenge? You will find that hope as you boldly come into the throne of grace and you draw near to your high priest Jesus. You will find the hope and the strength that you need and you will not find it anywhere else. And let me just say this. I might be talking to some people, whether in this room or through, you know, online. You kind of, you know, you're thinking, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. I think I'm going to find it somewhere else. And I don't say this coldly, but good luck. Because I don't think you will. I mean, I, listen, my story, I know so many people have been like, I'm going to go see what's out there. I'm going to go, and it's just like, you know, here's the thing. If you have tasted the goodness of God, if you've tasted what it is I'm talking about, you're done. Because you know what? You're going to go down other roads, and you're, gonna, and you're just going to know in the back of your mind. You're like, man, I, I got to go back to the Father's house. I got to come back to everything that God has for me. So what I want to do right now as we end the service, do something a little bit different. I want us to boldly come into the Father's presence. That we boldly come to this throne of grace to find the help that we need through our high priest Jesus in our time of need. And it says this in Lamentations 3.22, because this is what we're going to find. This is what we can, you know, the promises, we'll find it every time. Lamentations 3.22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. And maybe, you know, I hope maybe you understand what that means a little bit more now that we've, you know, after this message. You're not consumed. You can come. You've been made perfect once for all. You can boldly come into God's presence. We, will, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's together, in this room and, on, and online, let's come before the throne of grace. And let's experience his compassions anew. They're new every morning. So let's all stand. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I bless your presence in this place. Jesus, our high priest. Jesus, the one from the beginning, the one through whom all things were made. Lord, you became a little baby for us. You emptied yourself of all the privileges of deity. And you died on a cross so that a way could be opened. And Lord, you had joy before you for this moment. Joy knowing that your people would be able to come to that throne of grace and find the grace and the mercy that they need. And so Lord, we come right now in Jesus' name. Draw near with your presence right now. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, the door is open. The way is open. Draw near to your people, God. Draw near to your people in this room, in all the homes, wherever people are. Come, Holy Spirit. Bless your presence in this place. Open the eyes of our heart, God, afresh and anew, that we would see the wonders of our salvation, the wonder of what you've done for us, God. No more barriers. So, Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name that the love of God would flow in this place. That the love of God would flow online into homes. That we would feel the love that you have for us. You made us to love us, God. I pray you'd lavish us right now with the love that we were created to receive. So come, Holy Spirit. 
Fill us with love right now for your glory. God, we're your children. We live in a rough world. And we have trouble. So we come to you right now. And if you're struggling with guilt and shame, something that you've done in your past that you just haven't been able to get past, God does not want you carrying that burden. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. He came to save the world. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. And so take that thing that causes guilt, that causes shame, give it to Jesus. Let him throw it into the sea of forgetfulness because he bore it so you don't have to. So in the name of Jesus, in light of all that Jesus has done through the gospel, I proclaim that you are forgiven. That all of our filthy rags are taken away and we are clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus. So receive God's forgiveness. Be washed, be made clean. Don't carry that shame, don't carry that guilt anymore. Jesus wants you free of it. Come, Holy Spirit. Bless your presence here, God. Draw near to your people. Communicate your love, your reality, your goodness in the ways that you can, Lord, to each of our hearts, just individually. You made us. You know how we're wired. You know how to get through to us. And we come to you now. Those of you who are struggling with financial pressure. You know, maybe you're food insecure. Maybe you're, you know, you're in a place right now, you're in a situation where you got to come on Fridays and get the box, and, and, and you've just never been in that place before, and you know, you know, it's hard. But God wants you to know that he's with you, that he's with you, and he understands what it's like to not have enough. He knows what it's like to be find the strength and the hope that you need in knowing that Jesus has promised to meet all of our needs according to the riches which are found in himself. So Lord, for those who are struggling with hope right now, God, breathe hope because they're before your throne of grace and you see and you hear and you understand. those who are heartbroken. I think Jesus, you know, this is a whole other sermon, but I, I think he died of a broken heart. He knows what it's like to be heartbroken. He knows what it's like to grieve. So maybe Christmas is really hard because you're grieving someone who's not going to be with you this Christmas season. Maybe your heart was broken by a guy or a girl or your spouse, kids. Come to the throne of grace and find comfort right now from your high priest who understands. Give it to him. Cast all your anxiety, all your fear upon him. Whatever is causing anxiety or fear in the name of Jesus speak against fear right now in Jesus' name. That God's perfect love would drive out fear. That we would not be afraid. But that we would live in the peace that just doesn't make any sense, that passes all understanding. Come Holy Spirit. More Lord. God's presence just settling in. Just drink it in. Drink in His presence. There's no barrier. We're going to talk about Isaiah 53 next week, and one of the verses says, By our stripes, by His stripes, we are healed. And so if you have any pain in your body right now, I believe the Lord wants to draw near and He wants to heal. Those of you who are home, 
recovering from COVID, whatever, whatever it is, wherever your sickness is, however it's manifesting, in the name of Jesus, I speak healing right now. In the name of Jesus, I speak against pain, and I command pain to go right now in Jesus' name, for by his stripes we are healed. And I think there's somebody here, I think somebody in the room, you've got back pain in the lower left part of your back. And I believe that right now, Jesus is healing you. Jesus is driving away that pain. So God, I just bless what you're doing right now. And if that's you, let me know afterwards. Let me know that that as this happened at 9 o'clock, somebody came up to me and said, oh yeah, the shoulder, that was me. But by his stripes, we are healed. And so Lord, we boldly come into your throne of grace right now, God. We draw near because of your great love for us. The door is open. You empathize, you sympathize, you understand. And so listen, if you're listening to this, if you're in the room, and I was to say to you, where are you at with God? And if you were to say, I I don't really know. We know what you can know. You can know. You can know right now where where you're at with God because salvation is a gift. It's something that Jesus did that we received. So if you're ready to accept that gift, to accept the gift of salvation so that your sins can be covered, so there'll be no barrier between you and God, and you could begin living knowing that your high priest Jesus is for you and is with you and will strengthen you and will help you get through, and one day you're going to come into the kingdom of heaven and you will be with God forever and ever and ever in his kingdom, and you can know that you know that you know that that is sealed. You have been made perfect you're ready to receive the most incredible gift of any gift, you pray this prayer. Just keep your eyes closed. You don't even have to say it out loud, but say, Lord Jesus, my high priest, I believe you died on the cross in my place. I accept your free gift of salvation. Please forgive all of my sins and make me righteous. Make me here on out, I'm going to follow you because you are the Lord of my life. And I want to live my life close to you, receiving your strength, becoming more like you, serving you. 